Welcome to the Tom Nelson Podcast. Today I have Patrick Moore here. And uh, Patrick, would you like to just uh, introduce yourself to uh, start things off? Well, I grew up in the far northwest tip of Vancouver Island, where there weren't even any roads. I, I grew up on a floating logging camp in Winter Harbor, and it is the most northern harbor on the west coast of Vancouver Island, which happens to be the largest island on the west coast of the entire Americas, from Alaska to Argentina. There is no larger island. It's 300 miles from stem to stern. Oh. And okay. I grew up on the north end of it, which is, was at that point completely remote. There was no road access to the whole half of the island. And at the beginning, the only way to get out was to take a fish boat eight hours to a little port called Coal Harbor, go overland in a taxi for a couple of hours and get on a, a steamship that went overnight to Vancouver. So that's how you got to town. And it took two full days and the, the odd storm and a chance to see some whales out on the sea while you, you had to actually go outside into the open Pacific out of Winter Harbor to get to this place. So that's, that's what getting out of town was like in those days. Uh, is it ever iced over or you, you could get out there by boat all the time? No, it's no, I, it, okay. the west coast of, of, yeah. of the Pacific west coast of Canada is virtually never iced out. Up some of the inlets where the fresh water is coming in heavy, uh, it'll freeze over up there, but not anywhere near the sea. And even, you know, even in the Aleutian Islands, uh, they almost never get ice up to the shore. That It comes down the Bering Sea some distance to the north. But those islands are are basically ice free because the ocean is above freezing uh, at, at that latitude. So it's it's a wonderful place to be the west coast of Canada. And that's why I've never left permanently. I've uh, traveled all around the world, uh, every continent and many places on each one of them. And uh, it's a beautiful world, but you just won't find anything more spectacular than a place that's twice the size of France and has only 4 million people in it, most of them huddled in the city of Vancouver and a bunch of the rest in the, in the capital city of Victoria. And otherwise than that, it's practically empty. So except for all the wildlife and birds and rivers and mountains and glaciers and every other most wonderful thing that you could imagine. So uh, that's, that's where I'm from. I'm still here living in Comox on the east coast of Vancouver Island, which is a town of about 60,000 people. So it's a, it's a 10 minute town with all the amenities. And it's a very agricultural area as Vancouver Island is almost entirely mountainous. So there's only perhaps 2% of it that is arable for farming, plowing land. And much of that is here in this valley. And it's been settled since about 1860 and, uh, is a beautiful, beautiful place. It's one of the most important estuaries. The Courtney River uh, is one of the most largest rivers on the west coast of BC. And it's also one of the most important estuaries for bird life and fish and uh, tide flat type ecology and all of that up and down the coast. I left Winter Harbor to go to boarding school in Vancouver at age 14 because my one-room schoolhouse that I went to by boat every day in the fishing village uh, only had about eight or 12 people in it most of the time from grades one to eight. And uh, I went, ended up in a boarding school in the middle of the biggest city and, and eventually learned city ways and began to study life science 
uh, as early as grade nine, I was fascinated by the sciences. My parents had bought me the entire set of the books of knowledge when I was 12, and I read them from cover to cover, and they're like 20 volumes. So I, I was steeped in this, and my mother turned me on to Bertrand Russell's essays when I was 15, uh, particularly on authority and the individual, which is a treatise on the fact that there are two opposite forces uh, that are at work in the daily lives of the human species, and that is wanting to be free from society's control versus wanting to control society. And both are necessary and they are opposites. And therefore a balance must be found between the two because either one of them by themselves would on one hand mean no civilization, on the other hand mean total tyranny and what we often call fascism. In other words, no freedom as an individual. And so that is the, that is the story of the human, uh, hu human evolution uh, and progress through time in terms of our social structure. And so I've always been interested in that, but that's not my main, I'm interested in it because it's about population and all ecology is also all about populations of plants and animals, each ones of which has their different life cycles and, and uh, very different life cycles in, in many cases. So what a fabulous thing that is to study. And I ended up going more into the plant world. I, I didn't really like cutting up uh, frogs that had been in, in a, a solution of some kind of uh, poison for a long time before you cut them and then had to look inside them. So I was way happier with plants, especially trees, because that's where I grew up, was around a lot of trees, but also around a lot of fish. I just didn't really feel like being a zoologist, so I ended up being more of a ecological botanist. Uh, but have since spread out into a million fields of, of inquiry and thought, uh, where I think I am fairly well steeped in the science of the earth and its system and the ecology of the planet and uh, how things have worked over the last many, many millions of years. One of the big problems, I think, is that so many people don't even think past when they were born or 1850 or you know, a thousand years ago, maybe. But this world is 4.5 billion years old, and we have good records of many of the uh, features of this Earth going back for billions of years. And no, and people are not taking advantage of that fact or are ignoring it in order not to have to take advantage of it because it doesn't fit their narrative to recognize that this today, right now, with both poles covered in large sheets of ice, is one of the coldest periods in the last billion years. There's been a couple of other ice ages during that time, but the last one ended 250 million years ago. So there, there seems to be no acceptance that we are in an ice age, when in fact this is the Pleistocene ice age, and all the temperature records make it very clear that this is the Pleistocene ice age, and that we're at the tail end of a 50 million year cooling period out of the Eocene thermal maximum. Let's start there. You have to be a denier of the temperature record of the earth to say that we are too warm now. And if, if you're interested in what life likes, because ice is the enemy of life. How many species are there in Antarctica? There's a few species of penguins. Some birds 
go there on the sea mostly. They're not really there because of the ice. Well, the penguins aren't even there because of the ice. They're there because there's a place on the ice for them to stand so they can go in the water and eat some fish. There's nothing for them to eat on the ice. So ice is the enemy of life. We need to start there. We need people to understand that that, that warmth is, is the friend of life. And that that leads to one of my main uh, principles, which is to recognize that the human species is a tropical species. We evolved at the equator. There is no question of that. And the only reason we could eventually come out of Africa into climates that were colder in the winter was because of fire, shelter, and clothing, things which other species don't have the advantage of. And therefore, most tropical species cannot come out of Africa because they would die of the cold. Like there's many, many plants that can't even live below five degrees Celsius. They die then because it's too cold for them. But the only place in the world that is really too hot are the dry deserts. And they are not actually at the equator. The, the, the equator is largely moist and not as hot as the hot deserts are. Like the Sahara, for example, is not at the equator. It's way north of it. And those areas are uninhabitable to most life, never mind humans. But we learn to live there. Uh, for example, the Sahara during the first 5,000 years of this interglacial period, which is known as the Holocene, uh, the first 5,000 years was warmer than it is now. And the whole of the Sahara was green. And there are maps showing the towns, little red dots where the towns were, where the people lived in the Sahara, goat herders primarily. And it was only about 5,000, 6,000 years ago that it turned into a desert and the people had to congregate around the Nile watershed. And that is thought to be why all these people came that were all spread all over the place, came together there and formed one of the first human civilizations, which was the Egyptian civilization. And because there was there was enough of them that they had to have lots of organizing and politics and everything else. And then, of course, people moved north to what now we call the Middle East, Tigris Euphrates re region. And they went to China as well. And that's a, a whole thing that most Europeans don't even know much about. But that was a big part of the human migration out of Africa. But it couldn't have happened if it wasn't for fire, shelter, and clothing, all of which make it possible for us to live in cold climates similar to the very hairy animals with big warm coats on them. Even they have to burrow in the ground like a fox and a bear. They have to go into hibernation in the winter, as frogs do too. So, so many species are not capable of living in northern or southern climes unless they have these special adaptations to do so. Otherwise, they would die of the cold, and so would we. So okay. there. And that, 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 to me, is the primary argument for why we should immediately question any idea that it's getting too hot because it really is still colder now than it was through almost the entire history of life. And there's no reason to believe that the other ice ages weren't as, as difficult for species that lived in Northern and Southern climes as this one is. 
So on a different, maybe it was in one of your TED Talks or a TED Talk, I think you said that the temperature of 10 degrees Celsius is about as cold as humans can take it if they don't have any clothes. No, it's actually, it's actually much higher than that. It's more like 20. Okay. Uh, our body is 36 mm -hmm. Celsius. So 20, 20 degrees in the shade. If, this is if you're not in the sun because the sun counteracts mm -hmm. that by warming you. But if you're in the shade naked at 20 degrees Celsius, you die of hypothermia. And people think, well, 20 degrees is nice. Well, it is if you're in a house, you know, with a controlled temperature and you have clothes on. Because if you take all your clothes off in a 20 degree room, you get cold. It just, it feels too cold. You want to put a dressing gown on. And at 18, it's even more pronounced. So somewhere in that range, that is too cold for life, for the human body to survive uh, for a long period of time like for days, for example, you would not last, even if you were eating well. So it, it is important to recognize the, the range of temperatures that are most conducive to life. And it is very clear that if there's sufficient rainfall, that the tropics have by far the highest biodiversity of anywhere in the world, way higher than the temperate regions like where I am, and obviously higher than the North or South Pole. So just take that as a, as, as a simple uh, indicator of where life likes it best. Life likes it best where there is no frost. And so when you move from where there's no frost to where there is frost, and that boundary is only, it's about halfway to the North Pole from the equator, that boundary, and halfway to the South Pole from the equator. Actually, the South Southern Hemisphere is colder at the higher latitudes than the northern because the sea doesn't warm as easily as the land does. And so that, that we, we all know that, that, that Antarctica is colder than the Arctic because of, it's just completely surrounded by ocean, but the land mass is actually a land mass, whereas the Arctic Ocean is a sea. There, aren't, there is no land Except, except for the Canadian Arctic islands, but even they don't go right up to the North Pole, whereas Antarctic is a solid continent. Uh, so the, they're, they're very different. Main, main point being though, at the, at the South Pole, it's colder than it is at the North Pole because of the, the distribution of land and sea on the earth. And so really about half of the earth's latitude is not conducive to life unless it's specially adapted. And that means being uh, frost resistant. And the only way plants really became frost resistant was either to die back as annual plants do. So they just die back and they keep their roots where it's not frozen in the ground for next year. Or for example, in, in, in conifers like spruce and pines and that, when the frost comes, they keep their needles over the winter. So they take the water out of their cells and put it into the intercellular place where it can freeze without crystal, the crystals damaging the organelles like the nucleus and the chloroplasts and mitochondria that are in the cell itself. So the, the cell expels all, all the water and becomes like a gel. So it's sort of like an anti- 
uh, what do you call it, uh, antifreeze. It becomes an antifreeze inside each cell of every needle that they have to be able to do that. And then they can live through the winter. And when the sun comes back in the summer, they take the water back in and they live again so that the whole cell actually hibernates in that sense. It stops in order to withstand the cold of the winter. And one fascinating natural uh, phenomenon I witnessed as we were sailing towards Amchitka on our first Greenpeace voyage to stop the five megaton nuclear tests in the Aleutian Islands, we passed south of, of Kodiak Island, which is a couple hundred miles long or something. It's quite, it's a big island. And at the western, sorry, the eastern end of it, the tree line was at about 300 feet, and then it was barren above that. But as you went along, the tree line constantly became lower and lower and lower until about two-thirds of the way along the shoreline of Kodiak Island, it disappeared below the sea. And all there was was barren ground after that. So I'm going, why is it then that so many of the villages way even further out in the Aleutian chain have lots of trees growing in them, spruce trees, but no trees growing around, it's barren. And because it's not too, too, it's not too cold for the trees to grow. Like the, the Mackenzie River Delta, where it gets 60 below, that's cold. And even trees can grow there because they do what I mentioned about putting their water into, in, into the intercellular place. But there's no trees out in the Aleutian Islands, except for ones that were planted by people in the towns. And I realized that it wasn't because it was too cold there. It was because it wasn't warm enough in the summer to make seed. And so that's another important thing about plants and evolution is that in order to propagate, you need to be able to make seeds. And making seeds takes a lot of energy compared to just being there with your needles out in the sun. So that that taught me a really interesting lesson about biology that no one else, I don't even, I've never seen it even written down, but it's obviously that that's what the case is because in that part of the world, in the Aleutians, the temperature difference between summer and winter is very small compared to on the land, on the main mainland. It doesn't freeze there in the winter, but it doesn't get very warm. It never gets above 20 degrees there in the summer, Celsius that is. And, uh, yeah, that, it, there's so many fascinating things you can see out there. And one of the most important ones now is what's called the greening of the earth by CO2, uh, which we have caused by putting this life force substance back into the atmosphere where it came from in the first place. And that's a whole conversation in itself, because for some reason, people don't realize that the emissions we are producing from burning fossil fuels, the carbon dioxide, came from the atmosphere to make the fossil fuels. It was there before. It's not as if we're adding something new that was never there. It's, it's the plants that took it out and, and the animals in the sea that took it out that got buried in sediments and turned into fossil fuels. And all the carbon in those fossil fuels came from the atmosphere and from the sea in the first place. And all we are doing is returning it to where it came from when it made that life. 
So if it could make that life then, when it was much higher, 1,000 ppm, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 ppm, if it could make all that life then so rich and productive that it produced all that fossil fuel, then what's wrong with putting some of it back in and greening the earth, which is what even NASA uh, recognizes this, as do many other major science institutions around the world. So as a, as a director of the CO2 coalition, which I was a founding member of in 19, sorry, 2015, uh, with Will Happer, Dick Linson, and others who are the top in their field, uh, it is clear to me that CO2 is entirely beneficial. Our emissions of CO2 are entirely beneficial, and there is nothing wrong about them. And to call them pollution is a travesty of science. Uh, it, it is so ridiculous. I'd like now to explain why you shouldn't trust anybody who uses the word carbon when they mean carbon dioxide, as in carbon pollution. That's what I'd like to do a little ditty on. I had two related questions here. Just in your um, in your view, what is the optimum level of CO2 in the atmosphere for life on Earth? If you're trying to optimize life on Earth, uh, what number would you pick for that? And also for uh, global average temperature, or how much warmer than here would you like the Earth to be if you were trying to maximize diversity of life on Earth? I don't know if that makes sense, but... The second one is, yeah. is a more difficult thing to discuss because it's so much more multi-parametered. Yeah. It's not just about temperature, in other words, whereas CO2 is kind of just about CO2. Um, well, if you take for a fact that every time we exhale, we're an animal like others. We're not that different from other animals of our size and shape with four limbs and things like that, even birds with their two wings and their two legs, uh, even insects. Uh, we all breathe in oxygen and breathe out CO2, which the carbon in which came from the food we eat, the sugars and starches and proteins. The food we eat, the carbon came from the food. The oxygen came from the air that's in CO2. And when we breathe out, the concentration of CO2 is 40 to 50,000 parts per million. Every time we breathe, uh, uh, 40,000, 40,000 ppm of CO2. So obviously 40,000 parts per million CO2, which is 100 times the present level? No, 100. yeah, 100. Yeah. 100 times the present level is not even in the slightest harmful as long as you get to have some oxygen every time you breathe of, of which the air contains 20 percent so four percent 40,000 parts per million is four percent that's not going to negate the oxygen so it wouldn't matter for animal life whatever co2 goes up to we haven't gotten there's not enough fossil fuels for us to take it up probably past 2000, I, I don't know for sure. Okay, so, but let's talk about plants because, you know, really the basis of life is plants and chlorophyll and photosynthesis and sunlight. And CO2 is in fact, the most important chemical in that formula along with others, because you can't make a plant with just carbon 
but it is the basis. And one, one of the ways to, to, to show how important carbon is and, and CO2 as a result, carbon, the chemistry of carbon is called organic chemistry. The chemistry of all the other 91 elements is called inorganic chemistry. So carbon has been recognized with good reason as having a unique, not just significant, but unique position in the periodic table of elements as the progenitor of life, the creator of life. But it can't create life by itself. You can't eat carbon and expect to, to, to grow because it just it's just, it's, you know, carbon is either in the form of carbon black, which is basically soot, or in the form of graphite, that's pure carbon, or in the form of diamonds, that's pure carbon. It is a, right at the beginning as, a, as an atom, it is a miracle thing that it can have all those different shapeshifter uh, qualities to it. But when you add two atoms of oxygen to it and get CO2, you have the formula for all life because the CO2 is the food for plants and the oxygen the plants emit because of their the chemical formula for creating sugar from CO2 and H2O, the oxygen that is emitted becomes the basis of life for animals. And so there would be no animals if there were no plants. It's just not possible for that to have ever happened. And there are a lot of animals, uh, and especially insects, uh, I forget who it was, it wasn't Darwin, it was someone who said God must have had an inordinate fondness for beetles. As 50% of all, all life species we know of are insects and half of them are beetles. So 25% of the, in, of, the, of the population or of the number of species that have been named, identified and named are beetles and they need the oxygen too. So, it's a perfect circle and it starts with CO2. The CO2 isn't made by us, isn't made by life. The CO2 came from the bowels of the earth as a gas in volcanic eruptions in the early earth when it was at least 10,000 parts per million early on. We know it was 5,000 parts still at the Cambrian explosion, which was only half a billion years ago. So 4 billion years after the earth was created and put all this CO2 into the atmosphere, along with all the water. All the water came from inside the earth too, as, as steam in the early years, as gas. And eventually as the earth cooled, water became in many ways the most interesting of all the elements, even more interesting than CO2 from a climate point of view and a chemistry point of view because water is on the earth in all three phases. A gas as humidity in the air, liquid all over the place in all the, of course the oceans are made of water as we all know, and that's two thirds of the earth's surface, Never mind how deep they are. And then there is ice. And all three of those, steam or humidity, uh, in other words, gaseous water, or liquid water or solid water as ice, all three of those have completely different qualities when it comes to how they affect life, the climate, etc. So that's sort of where I start. Uh, what's the optimum CO2 level for life? 
I would say it's between 1500 and 2000 ppm. Uh, in other words, any higher than that probably doesn't make a big difference. There's just plenty of it then. Uh, with oxygen for, for animals, for example, I can't believe it, but I'm told if you go down below 15% from 20, it becomes not good. And that, that to me is amazing. We're, we could, and, and if you go, Lovelock at least said that if you go above 40%, a spark will immolate the entire earth because the oxygen will spontaneously ignite. So we're really lucky that it ended up kind of halfway in between the death of animals and the death of the earth. And uh, there we are. And, and, and in a way, it, it, Lovelock was one of my great inspirations when he wrote Gaia, the th a new theory of life on earth. And so I invited myself to his home in the Westlands of Britain out near Cornwall. And uh, he accepted my invitation to myself. And so I, I flew there and took a train from uh, Heathrow to way out west. And I got there in time for, for him to pick me up at the station and, and go for afternoon stroll and have dinner. And late into the night, and he showed me the instruments he'd invented to detect parts per billion of things in the air. and. Uh, his little lab. I mean, he was a, a brilliant inventor as well as a brilliant thinker. And uh, he, I was there for him to please tell me why he was a strong supporter of nuclear energy. Because coming out of Greenpeace, uh, we had made the mistake of lumping nuclear energy in with nuclear weapons because our whole campaign was against nuclear war and nuclear weapons and radiation was the sort of common denominator there. And even I, as a scientist, got sucked in to thinking nuclear energy was dangerous. And now that I know that 100 nuclear plants, more than 100 nuclear plants, have been operating in Canada and the United States for 60 years, and no one's been hurt by them, that would not be unsafe. That would be very safe, because people get hurt by a lot of things. And one of them is not nuclear plants, apparently. And so I wanted, but I wanted to find out his justification and, and I wanted to ask him why he believed that the increase in carbon dioxide was going to cause a disaster. Cause he was saying things like that the human race would be reduced to a few scavenging lots huddled around the Arctic circle ruled by brutal warlords. That's almost a direct quote yeah. of what he said in his book. And I wanted to, to tell him, no, uh, Jim, as he let me call him. Uh, no, Jim, that is not what is going to happen if it gets a little bit warmer. The people are going to be able to move further north and south, but they're not going to get hurt at the equator because it's the truth is when the earth does warm, as it has done through most of the past history of the earth, it warms more towards the poles and really not at all at the equator. So the equator stays basically the same, but the earth's average temperature goes up because the North Pole becomes warm enough for subalpine, sorry, for subtropical vegetation on the Canadian Arctic islands. The fossils are there to prove it. And so there were giant camels roaming the forests of the Canadian Arctic islands only five years ago, five million years ago. 
as the Pleistocene began to set in and set in for good, they, they demark it at 2.6 million, but it's arbitrary because it was a continuous cooling. But there they say, okay, this is where the Pleistocene Ice Age started. And all it's done is got colder since then. If you look at the last five or six glacial maximums, they are colder than the previous ones. The warm part is still pretty even, but if you look at the last four of them, this interglacial, the Holocene, is not as warm as the three preceding ones were. The Emian, the, I forget the other two, but they've got names, um, and they're 100,000 years apart. And so 100,000 years ago, the earth was warmer than it is now, and 100,000 before that, it was warmer than it is now, and 100,000 before that in the maximums, which are only 10,000 year periods in the 100,000 year cycle, because the, 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 the slip down into the next glaciation is an 80,000 year period. And we are apparently on the downward slope already at the end of what should be at the end of this interglacial, about 12,000 years. And the last 6,000 have shown a net decline. We just happen to be in a little uptick now, which everybody is saying is because of our CO2 emissions, as if this is the only time the earth ever had anything happen. You know, it, it's, it's, it's as if because CO2 and temperature are both going in the same direction for a few hundred years, that therefore that is the cause of the entire history of the earth. And it, I'm sorry, but it isn't, and it doesn't prove that at all. And the past history actually proves it to be false. No, no doubt about it. I could talk about that for another four or five hours. This is fabulous stuff. Um, do you have any uh, estimate as what would happen if uh, we got two degrees centigrade of warming from here? Uh, I think that would be fine myself for life on earth, but what do you think? Two degrees warming would probably not even eliminate the Antarctic ice cap uh, or even come close to it. Um, that, that Antarctic ice cap happened, began to happen 30 million years ago, long before the Arctic started freezing. So that's the th thing about how different the two poles are, mm -hmm. is that the Arctic ice cap began to freeze 30 million years ago. And then there was a, about a a 15 million year period of fairly even temperature where it even went up a little bit and some of that ice melted and then it plunged into what we have now over the next 10 million years, the, the, the Pleistocene Ice Age. So a two degree increase in temperature would be extremely positive. Now for almost all life forms, but a two degree increase in temperature might negatively impact some of the life forms that have adapted to this unusual cold period the earth happens to be in now, which is the Pleistocene Ice Age. As I say, the, the last ice age was the Karoo, K-A-R-O-O, -O. look it up, you're not involved, but it did happen 350 million years ago it began and 250 million years ago it ended in other words, it was an ice age that lasted for 100 million years. And then it got warm again, 250 million years ago. And it wasn't till now that it got cold again. So through all that 250 million period, it was warmer than it is now. And that's when 
most of modern life, of course, evolved. That was, I mean, 250 million years ago was when the Permian extinction happened. And 65 million years was ago was when what we call the dinosaur extinction happened. So we've had two major extinctions happening in there. And what's happening now is that actually coming out of the so-called dinosaur extinction, because lots of other things extincted too, not just dinosaurs. And, but the birds survived and they are actually dinosaurs. So that it didn't kill all the dinosaurs. It didn't kill the ones that could fly. Maybe because they could fly to where the carrion was, where the animals that couldn't walk far enough to get any food were decaying and gave them another couple of years before the skies cleared of the ash from the asteroid impact at uh, Yucatan. Um, so, and we don't know what caused the Permian extinction. A lot of people say it was CO2 coming out of the uh, of volcanic, uh, but that's just a, it, they, 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 they grab that one because it fits their narrative best, but we really don't know. It was 250 million years ago. The earth has gone through so many changes since then that we have no idea what caused the Karoo Ice Age, or the one before that, the Silurian, which was a short one. Uh, hopefully this one will be short and life will be able to flourish more towards the poles, which you can't do now because it's too cold. But some species may not benefit from a warming of the earth. We wouldn't be one of them. We would benefit greatly from a two degree increase in the earth's temperature as forests and agriculture would all move further south and north. And so, uh, yeah, polar bears, let's look at them as a perfect example. If it wasn't for climate change, there would be no polar bears. They are the product of climate change as we came into this ice age. Before this Pleistocene existed, say five million years ago, there was no ice on the pole, on the North Pole. There was ice on the South Pole by then no ice on the North Pole. How could polar bears evolve if there was no ice? Because the polar bears basically evolved in order to prey on the seals that live under the ice and come up to breathe and have their pups on the surface. That's their food. There wouldn't be any polar bears if it wasn't for that ice there. So polar bears evolved because the earth cooled. They evolved from the European, Eurasian I mean, from the Eurasian brown bear, what we in the Western Hemisphere call the grizzly bear. It's the same species, but the polar bear began to evolve long before the grizzly bear made it to North America over the Bering Land Bridge during one of the major glacial advances. The polar bear started to evolve, evolve over on the Asian side, the European side, from the Eurasian brown bear as the ice eventually came down so far as to come to the coast of Northern Asia and Europe, bears could walk out on the ice and hunt for seals and they turned into polar bears. It's called divergent evolution. When one species splits into two because they are either in totally different ecosystems and are not intermating with each other, or yeah, are not interbreeding with each other. So they, they, they evolve separately, in, the, in other words, if they're not breeding with each other. That's many species. The barred owl and the spotted owl are a perfect modern example of that. They were once one species, but the ice age made them into two by splitting them to one side of the Rockies 
or the other. Uh, so the polar bear evolved from the Eurasian brown bear. And if the ice disappeared in the Arctic due to warming, as it was for millions and millions of years prior to that, would the polar bear survive? Now, the polar bear, they, they keep talking about how the summer ice is going to disappear in the Arctic, as if that would damage the polar bear population. The polar bears don't go out on the ice in the summer. They go out on the ice in the winter when it's frozen over completely. In the winter, even today, there isn't a square inch of the Arctic Ocean that isn't frozen over. People forget that it's six months with no sun, no solar radiation for six months on the Arctic Ocean. Then there is six months with no darkness, only light. So though in those six months, yes, the ice is going to melt some, but when the ice melts and retreats from its extremities into a massive still circle of ice around the North Pole, then much of the Arctic Ocean is exposed to the sunlight in the summer. And you know what sunlight does? It causes plankton to grow in the sea. And so it's good to have the Arctic Ocean partly open in the summer. It's actually beneficial to the bears and might be part of the reason why their population has expanded so rapidly since 1973, when all polar nations signed a treaty to end the unrestricted hunting of polar bears because they were declining and wildlife biologists knew that and informed the governments around the pole that they should probably do something about it, and they did. And no one ever tells you that. Coca-Cola mercilessly uses the polar bear as a symbol of whatever it is, uh, I don't know what they're using. it. I don't know what they mean when they use the polar bear to, for Coca-Cola. But, but anyways, they don't tell you about the treaty that made it so that they weren't going to go extinct. And, and, and they show the polar bear swimming uh, as if it's gone in the water, not knowing where it's going. Right. Just going to swim out endlessly to sea and drown or whatever. No, they're called sea bears for a reason. That's their nickname. They're perfectly happy swimming. And when they go in the water, they know where they're going, to the other side where the ice is, to get out of the water and go on the ice. That's why they go in the water. They don't just go for a swim, you know, and drown, because they're very, very good in the, in the ocean. Their paws are huge for, for paddling. And uh, they float quite nicely, too, because they have a lot of fat on them, especially now uh, that there's so many seals in the Arctic, partly due to the fact that part of the Arctic Ocean melts in the summer. So the optimum conditions for polar bears would be the Arctic ice melting considerably in the summer, because they actually come onto the land in the summer and forage as best they can for berries. They'll eat kelp. They'll, they'll eat almost anything. The females, if they're pregnant, which they are many summers, they, they give birth in summer rather than in winter like bears here do like black bears, for example, they give birth and they, they den. So they aren't even eating in the summer. So they don't care if there's any ice there in the summer and neither do the adult males. They are, they are browsing on whatever grows up there in the summer. In the winter, it's a total sheet of ice and they go out on the ice and hunt seals and, and build up a huge fat store, which carries them through the summer. So the, the whole thing and they're still trying to make us think that polar bears are going to go extinct in 2035 or something you know and it's a total lie there's there is it is absolute nonsense and they should stop 
because the polar bear population has grown from somewhere between five and 8,000 in 1973 when the treaty was passed to somewhere between 30 and 50,000 now. So stop it and recognize that human beings are actually capable of passing laws which help species to recover and don't go extinct. It's happened in hundreds of cases around the world. And we've, we've saved way more species from going extinct than have gone extinct because of us in the last century. No one even cared about extinction in 1800 or 1700 or 1600 or any other hundred before 1900. It was only the extinction of the passenger pigeon in Canada and the US due to overhunting, not due to climate change. It was that extinction that woke the public up. It was the time also when national parks were being created, something which had never happened in Europe and Asia back tens of thousands of years of civilization. Well, 10,000 years of civilization. It had never happened there. If you go to, to Europe today, you will not find parks the size of, Yellow, of Yellowstone or of, of Banff in Canada or any of these big parks. They don't have such a thing. They have a lot of forests though. Most people don't realize that in about 1750-1800, due to the fact that fossil fuels were not being used and wood was the only main source of energy for heat, all buildings were heated, glass works, steel works, copper smelters, steam engines, factories of all types were run on wood energy. Europe became quite populated and successful at the beginning of the industrial era. The forests of Europe were reduced to less than 10% of the, of the area of Europe, Eastern and Western combined, less than 10%. Today, because people looked around and went, hey, this is the first time in the history of human civilization that the forests are not giving us as much wood as we need and are therefore disappearing. So we gotta do something about it. And that's where silviculture was invented, the science of forestry. Just like agriculture was invented 10,000 years earlier, it had not been necessary to learn how to grow trees or breed trees all through that time because there was plenty of trees, but now there weren't. Today, 43% of Europe is forested with native trees, hardwoods and, and softwoods. In other words, broadleaf and needle leaf trees all over the place. It's over four times, nearly five times, the area that was forested at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And people are saying the forests are disappearing. There's actually more forest on Earth today than there was in 1900 or 1800. China and India, between the two of them, are responsible for one-third of all the reforestation, that's net reforestation, that has occurred in the last 20 years. This is an era of huge concern about forests. The only place that forests are being overused is where people don't have hardly any money and where wood is the easiest thing and dung are the easiest thing for them to use for energy. If we would just help them out a little bit with some fossil fuel electricity driven plants and some hydroelectric plants and some nuclear plants and some roads and railroads, they would increase their forests too because everybody wants that. Everybody wants the forests to be healthy and growing and productive. And yes, we should be using them for wood. And people worry about that they're using trees for wood pellets. There's this huge campaign 
against the forestry in the eastern and southern U.S., where they are claiming that whole trees are being ground up for wood pellets for European wood burning to stop the amount of fossil fuels they're burning in their coal plants, the Drax plant in Britain in particular. Who cares what the wood is used for as long as the forests are grown sustainably, number one, right? If they're being used for something useful, and that would be normal because no one would pay for them if they weren't. So what, what is wrong with that? But the, the real lie is that no sawmill company or forestry company would ever turn a piece of lumber into wood chips because the lumber is five times more valuable than a wood chip. But when you cut a forest, at least a quarter and often a third of the wood you take from the forest is not suitable for lumber, slabs, sawdust, chips. So that is what is being sold for fuel. Now, it used to be that all that material was used for other things, like mulch, for example. You see, you see mulch being spread everywhere. It's mostly bark and sawdust and stuff like that. But also, the kilns for drying the lumber use wood that was not suitable for making lumber to provide the energy for those kilns. Otherwise, they'd have to use natural gas to do that. Vermont gets 4% of its electricity from waste from sawmilling. What is wrong with that? So these people do the virtue signaling about how awful it is to use wood for certain things when it's perfectly suitable to use wood for certain things if it is useful. Nobody's just going to throw it in the river, you know. So it, it it is really galling to see people campaigning on this and actually winning over the media and people's minds to, oh my God, they're burning trees in the coal plant. Well, they're burning coal in the coal plant too. Well, I know you're against that as well, but uh, okay, so they should just not have any coal plants. I understand that you think that, but uh, we could go then into the whole wind and solar debacle and the batteries scam and all the other stuff. I mean, I'm not against electric cars. People accuse me of being electric cars. I'm just against people being forced to buy electric cars. That's all I'm against. If, if people want electric cars, let them buy them. But in, in, in the final analysis, we're going to run into a shortage of minerals here. I don't know if people know how much or it takes to make a battery for an electrical vehicle, 500,000 pounds, that's how much, like really a lot. And it has to be dug out of the ground somewhere and it has to be processed and the batteries don't last forever, that sort of thing. So there is no decent technical or economic feasibility reports on this net zero thing. And if, if you think car batteries and cars in general are going to be net zero? You don't think it's going to take energy to make a car still and the battery that's in it? And where's that energy going to come from? Batteries? No. Batteries do not produce energy. That's, a, that's news to some people. They just store it. You have to produce it with something else. And if you're going to produce it with wind and solar, just listen to this, this arithmetic and tell me it's wrong. Okay, you've got a city with a bunch of factories around it. 
and they need electricity every day. And at certain times, they need a certain peak amount of electricity. Now you come in with your wind and solar. Okay. You've got to be able to provide the peak amount, at least for some period of time. With, with reliable technology, like gas, coal, hydro, nuclear, you can provide it all of the time. But with wind and solar, you can never promise to do that. Because if you bet on it, you would lose bad. Because you can't produce the peak energy if there's no wind or if there's no solar or if there isn't enough wind or enough solar because there's clouds up there and stuff like that. Or it's nighttime and there is no solar or the wind dies down, boom, like that in the middle of the day when you need lots of power. So you have to have a very large amount of installed capacity to be able to meet the peak amount that's needed at any given time. And you can't just have the amount that's needed you have to have more than that why because when are you going to charge the batteries that are going to supply the electricity when the wind and solar isn't working whoa the only time you can charge the batteries is when you're also supplying the town and the industry with its electricity at full pop at full power oh now you need two-thirds of your electricity to come from the batteries because the wind and solar only works about one-third of the time on average at any kind of peak capacity. That's the best it can do is one-third. Solar is less than one-third. Wind can be a little more. So you have to have, oh, now you have to have three times the amount of capacity that you would have to have with a reliable technology. And wind and solar cost more. Don't try to fool me on that. They cost more than the other technologies do. That's because they're not fat, fat, factoring in the cost of the backup for wind and solar when they talk about the cost of wind and solar. They don't talk about the gas plant that has to be there or the battery that has to be there when the, when the wind and solar isn't working. So you end up probably needing four times for just for good measure because you don't want eight-hour blackouts to be happening regularly. So for good measure, you have to have four times the capacity at four times the cost and all these batteries, which there isn't enough minerals in the world to supply. I mean, even just to turn the EVs into a reality, first, you, you, they, you need to double the existing capacity. Electric cars in the whole world would double the existing requirement for electricity in the world. And everybody's shutting everything down now instead of going the other way. So this is a car wreck, train wreck of vast proportions already beginning to occur. And, you know, when the Paris Accord was signed, I was there in Paris for that whole thing. Of course, they wouldn't let us near anything much. But... Uh, I was there, I, I, I saw the 1500 private jets that had come in uh, with the dignitaries there, the largest jet port in the world. That's why they picked Paris that year, I guess, so they could get their jets in there with not being battery operated either, I'm afraid. And uh, I bet, made a bet publicly that went out to 200 major media outlets I used one of those distribution systems. You pay 200 bucks 
and they make sure it gets distributed to all the outlets. It was, it was printed widely around the world. I made a bet that in 2025, just 10 years from 2015, that there would be higher CO2 emissions globally than there was in 2015. That was a simple bet. Nobody took it up, not even the Greens, especially not the Greens, because they know full well that's not going to work. They know that CO2 emissions will continue to rise. Yet they behave as though they can somehow stop them with wind and solar pit plants and EVs. That's not going to happen. So it is actually going to get worse in many ways if we continue down this particular path. And in, in the final analysis, you come down to the fact that nuclear energy is the solution. And J James Lovelock was partly instrumental in convincing me of that at the time in 2002, I believe it was, long after I'd left Greenpeace, but I'd never been involved with nuclear. So to make up for my sin of the past, I worked as co-chair of the Clean and Safe Energy Coalition, which was created by the US Nuclear Energy Institute in Washington, which represents the nearly 100 operating nuclear plants in the United States. I became co-chair of an effort to liaison with top people in government and industry around the United States, especially where nuclear was an issue either because of opposition to it or because of the fact there was a bunch of plants there that needed to be defended or one thing or another. And we made quite a lot of headway, but still the opposition to nuclear is so strong for no reason that it has not taken off in the, in the West. And as a matter of fact, is still being shut down while Russia, India, and China go full bore ahead with it. Look up in Russia on the Caspian Sea, the BN-800. BN maybe stands for big nuclear. Maybe big nuclear is, is BN in Russia too. I'm not sure. But uh, BN-800 and the BN-600 and the BN-1200. These are three fast neutron reactors which are using used fuel from going through a previous fuel cycle in a conventional nuclear plant. And this is the future. Because, in fact, even though uranium-235 is the only fissionable isotope on the planet, and it is only 0.7% of natural uranium, the rest of which is uranium-238, uranium-238 is fissile, which means it can be made into a fertile element, uranium-233, sorry, plutonium-239. It's thorium that can be made into uranium-233 which is fissile, and therefore we have enough nuclear energy to last till the end of time. And it is one of the safest technologies ever invented. It's 24 seven, absolutely and totally reliable and would make civilization run smoothly for as far into the future as anybody would want to imagine. Yet it is being still opposed in the West by fools. And I really mean fools because these are people who don't actually have any knowledge of what even the difference between fertile and fissile is, never mind uh, the, the, the technology itself and how safe it has been all through the decades that it's been operating. Only one accident killed people, and it was a stupid Russian design that was done behind the Iron Curtain without any influence from scientists in the West. And they took these plutonium production reactors that were used to make 
atomic bombs and cookie cuttered them all over the former Soviet Union and Russia when they were a bad design and they knew it. But it was only a fluke that Chernobyl blew up because radiation people, nuclear scientists from Nuclear Central in Moscow came to Chernobyl, picked one of the four reactors and said, we're gonna do an experiment here and told the operators to shut off the safety systems so the safety systems wouldn't interfere with their experiment. And in eight seconds, there was a nuclear explosion. The only nuclear explosion that has ever occurred in a nuclear plant of any kind, because it was a stupid design. I will not talk, talk to you about, op, about positive and negative void coefficient. It had to do with that. Look it up. But all of the other reactors, designs in the whole world could not ever do that. Three Mile Island and Chernobyl were meltdown reactions caused by loss of cooling to the core after shutdown. The reactors weren't even running when those accidents were occurring. They occurred because the reactor shut down without cooling water being supplied. And two different reasons in those two different reactors. Three Mile Island was basically a nothing burger. And Fukushima was just a comedy of errors. Well, a tragedy of errors, but it wasn't so much a tragedy and that nobody died at Fukushima from radiation. 2000 people died because of the evacuation. They took seven intensive care wards and moved them into gymnasiums off site. And 2000 people died as a result. They should have left them where they were because the radiation levels were not high enough to cause harm. It's just, a, it was a PR thing to evacuate those people. On and on he goes. That's a, an, a, a skit from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Oh, uh, there's this dream that wind and solar are going to uh, power the earth. Do you think that's, it's never going to happen, is it? No. Gonna, well, never. actually, to some extent, solar does power the earth. Otherwise, right, it right. wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. So in the way it has operated so far up till now, it's very effective in powering the earth, keeping it warm and making photosynthesis possible. Um, those two things are the basis for the existence of life on earth. Uh, the wind... Uh, if there was no wind, uh, seeds wouldn't blow away from where they were produced. Um, sailboats would never have been possible. Um, currents, ocean currents would be different. Uh, things like that. Yeah, I should have been more specific. Wind turbines and solar panels powering yeah. human civilization. Yeah. That no, I'm yeah. afraid not. My my motto for wind and solar is may they rust in place. Okay. As in rest in peace. And I, I honestly believe the day will come when not one more of those things will be built because they are only there due to subsidies, tax write-offs, and mandates that the utilities have to take the power whenever it's available, whether it costs twice as much or not. So no one would ever build wind and solar if it wasn't for the economic biases that have been placed in there by policymakers. And th this is, you know, science gives you the facts and the numbers and the truth. Policy gives you the decision you make on the basis of those facts that would be beneficial to the society. Supposedly, that would be the be that would be what you'd expect, anyways. 
And yet what's happening right now is lies are being used as facts. The lie that CO2 is a pollutant and is dangerous is being used to form the basis of global energy policy. Well, at least in the West. And India's making happy sounds about it too. So uh, we are in an era right now where we are in danger of imploding so badly. I mean, I don't have to worry. I, I, where I live, well, I do have to worry. I mean, if the whole supply chain breaks down and the, and the food doesn't come, thankfully, we can grow our own food here. Not on my little lot, but there's enough land around here to be pretty self-sufficient locally. As long as you go back to root cellars and canning all your, you know, preserving all your fruits and vegetables in the summer or fall. Um, but by and large, that those technologies will not exist at some point in the future. At some point in the future, we will recognize the key thing to recognize in my estimation. Well, let's start first with hydroelectric power. You know, that you, it's really natural and really clean, but it doesn't work where it's flat or dry or both, right? So it just doesn't work there. You, Denmark has lots of rain, but it's flat as a pancake. And Saudi Arabia might have mountains, but it doesn't have any water. So those two factors have to be fulfilled. And whereas Brazil gets 80%, Norway 90%, Canada 60% uh, of their electricity, not their energy, but their electricity from hydro, that's a wonderful thing. You know, the, the people who are against dams, they must think there's too many lakes in the world and not enough rivers or something. The fact of the matter is there is not as many lakes as there are rivers. And lakes are good too. There's nothing wrong with them. I know that in some cases they interfere with the migration of fish. That's particularly true here in the Pacific Northwest with the salmon. That has been mitigated to a considerable extent by providing ways for the fish to get through. Um, I agree that in some cases, like for example, Yosemite Valley would make a beautiful hydro dam, but it would be a travesty to deface it for that. And there are lots of cases where you may decide that that's not the best use for this area. But in, in many cases, it's fine to build a hydro dam and make a lake. And, and people like living around the lakes around hydro dams too, that make hydro, that are made by hydro dams. So that's hydro. The fossil fuels are then next biggest or the biggest thing, 80% plus of our energy should be conserved because they are precious and they are limited. No matter how much there is, we know it's limited more than say nuclear energy is for the future. So the strategy should not be to eliminate fossil fuels because they're pollution. It should be because they're precious and especially for air travel and many big equipments like massive machinery that move. It's almost all for mobile things where fossil fuels, especially gas and oil, become important. Now, coal, for example, what coal is good enough for steel making should probably not be used for making electricity. 
So you end up with a, a situation that gradually reduces the amount of fossil fuel and increases the amount of nuclear energy. That would be the optimum for the Earth and for humanity today. And the people think, well, nuclear can't run certain things. Actually, here's what nuclear can do. Right now, much of our buildings are heated, cooled, hot water, and appliances from fossil fuels, from gas plants and coal plants in particular. All of that can be replaced with nuclear energy by putting a wire to the building that comes from a nuclear plant 24-7. You could have, you know, you have grids so that there's more than one plant on the grid. And nuclear, nuclear fuel, fuel rotation cycles are all planned over a year in advance. So they can always plan their out outages mm -hmm. and plan them so that they don't disrupt the grid. So there, so about 30 to 40% of all the energy we use in the world, in, in, including electric and non-electric, is used for buildings. So all that can be done with nuclear. In addition to that, there are many other things, as long as they are stationary, steel mills, electric arc furnaces for recycling, uh, anything that is stationary can be run with nuclear energy for both electricity and heat, because nuclear provides both of those things. I mean, it's just a steam engine, really. It's a, the nuclear part of it is just to make steam, and the steam runs the turbine that makes the electricity 24 seven. Shipping. Uh, 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 Russia has six nuclear powered icebreakers in the Arctic, breaking six foot thick ice every year. You can do that. But that, not only that, there's six nuclear navies with nuclear submarines that go underwater for three months with nuclear warheads on them, on nuclear power propulsion. For 60 years, we've been doing that. If you look at Rolls-Royce in England has been producing the nuclear power plants for under, underwater submarine uh, for, for British Navy for six, 50, 60 years. They know how to do it. So if that can be done, then all large cargo ships and all oil tankers can be run on nuclear propulsion. And it's not that difficult. Running a steam engine, a steam turbine on a, on a freighter is very similar to running a nuclear turbine on a freighter. Uh, there's, there, there's hundreds of nuclear plants, 440 of them operating every day. They're operated by people who are trained in running a nuclear plant. Let's, let's put it this way. It's not rocket science. Well, it sort of is, but even rocket science, it, we know how to do that. Elon Musk has got that one figured out pretty good. So we can do rocket science. And the other thing is trains. So there's two mobile uh, uh, areas, shipping and trains, because you can electrify all the tracks. So all trains can be run on nuclear energy. And you get down to the point where, okay, we need them for airplanes. We need them for large machinery that is mobile, like big mine trucks are not gonna be running on batteries and huge, huge shovels. Although they can be tethered with electricity in many cases, cause they're in a pit and they're only moving a couple hundred feet a day. So all you have to do is move the, move the cable for them without even unhooking it. 
And so there's so much that can be, I, I would say that probably if we wanted to, we could eliminate something like 70% of the fossil fuels with nuclear energy uh, in a period of 50 years or, or so. So why don't we adopt that as a policy? That's a way better than the stupid wind, solar, and battery thing. Like it isn't going to work, so it won't happen. But trying to make it happen might cost $10 trillion, which is stupid. It's money thrown in the ocean. And uh, there you go. That's my take on wind and solar. May, may they rest in place. This, is, this has been fantastic stuff. It's tons of gold here. Um, we are coming up uh, well over an hour. Uh, do you want to uh, mention at all your uh, fake invisible catastrophes? Anything about your book or uh, oh, yeah. anything else about your work? Yeah. Here it is here. Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. It's based on a very simple premise. Well, I, I just want, this is a guy, you, you will perish in flames. I stole that from Ghostbusters. I don't know if you remember when Mark Moranis came to the horse and buggy in Central Park and was his eyes were already glowing from having looked in the fridge and seen the gozer or whatever it was. Um, and uh, he runs up to the horse and says, are you the key, key master or the gatekeeper or whatever it was? And of course, the horse, horse just stands there. And then as he runs away, tripping over all kinds of obstacles in his feet, so he's running away clumsily, he looks up at the driver and says, you will perish in flames. And I just thought that was better than the end is nigh, which is sort of the typical guy standing up in a park on a bit on a box right okay sign. and but truly the the, th the the premise of this book is very simple that's why it says invisible catastrophes because all of the scare stories today are about things that are either invisible to the eye the hand the mouth the smell cannot sense it co2 radiation and the bad thing in gmos Think about that for a minute. Yes, there is radiation and there is CO2. They are real things, but they're invisible and you can't see what they're doing. On the other hand, the GMOs, the bad thing in them, for some reason doesn't have a name. Like radiation has a name and CO2 has a name, but the bad thing in, 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 C in GMOs does not have a name. Therefore, it actually doesn't exist. It is fake, really fake, not just invisible but fake, because everything has a name. Think of something that doesn't have a name. There isn't anything, because if you know it exists, you give it a name, and they don't know it exists. They just fake in it, and making hundreds of millions of dollars from poor people who fall for this crap, just like they fall for organic food, when for goodness sakes, all food is organic. That's what carbon-based things are called, organic, you know? It's it's so ridiculous. The true meaning of organic is organic chemistry, the chemistry of carbon, the chemistry of life. That is the true meaning of organic, all life, not just something that's stamped with the word organic in a supermarket. That's, that, that is marketing. That is not science. And a lot of the climate change catastrophe stuff today is pure marketing. But let me, I don't know what you asked me, but I'm gonna answer, answer this it, this way. Oh, yeah. Oh, and or remote. Sorry, invisible or yeah. remote. Mm -hmm. 
And that's why polar bears and coral reefs are such strong icons, because no one can go and see for themselves how many polar bears there are, or dive the whole Great Barrier Reef or all the other massive reefs in the world to see how they're doing. When in fact, the polar bear population has grown substantially. I talked about that previously. And the coral reefs are in great shape, so much so that the Australian Maritime Science Association, whatever it's called, a government-based organ with universities and professors and all that, like a proper institution studying the coral reefs, had to admit this year that since they've been following the reef's cover for 36 years, it's higher now than it has been at any other time in those 36 years. And that did make some media. But what really made the media when was when 93% of the reef was nearly dead, almost dead, practically dead, in its terminal stage, in its final terminal stage, said Forbes, as if there are other terminal stages before the final stage. But none of those means dead. That was the trick. Practically dead, nearly dead, almost dead, or bleached. They love to use bleached, even though bleached doesn't mean dead either. It's a, it's a technical term. It doesn't mean that someone poured bleach on it. It means that the zooplankton expelled the phytoplankton. And because the zooplankton is like a jellyfish, clear, you can see right through it. And the coral is calcium carbonate, which is white. It, they called it bleached when that happens. But they're not dead. The animal is still alive in there and will eventually pick up some more phytoplankton, maybe of a different species. This is a whole amazing thing. Read my book. And oh, yeah, this one. Fake Invisible Catastrophe Nets. That's true. It's got over 2,700 reviews on Amazon. Hardly any book has that many reviews. And they're 94%. Actually, the last time I looked, it was 95%. Four or five star reviews. So it is being received very well around the world. And especially amongst people who are actually interested in the science of the subject. Now, let me conclude by telling you who you should and should not believe or listen to in this debate. Anybody who calls carbon dioxide carbon or carbon pollution should be ignored. Carbon is not carbon dioxide any more than hydrogen is water. You wouldn't call H2O hydrogen if you were a scientist or even wanted to sound like one. You would call it H2O or water or hydrogen dihydrogen oxide. You would call CO2 carbon dioxide or CO2, not carbon, right there. Anybody who says you are a science denier, do not listen to them. Do not even bother with the conversation. Cancel them. I just made that as a joke. I don't believe in that. But I do believe in not listening to people who say science denier or climate denier or climate change denier, because none of us are that. It is a lie that we are denying the climate or the climate changes. We do not agree with their interpretation of the data around climate for the last half billion years and into the present, because we know more about it. And we don't call people climate deniers because it is just a slur. It's name calling. It's like saying you are a complete idiot or something like that to call a person 
a climate change denier. So those are not the words of honest people. They're not the words of sincere or educated people to call you a climate denier or a science denier. Because we are interested in science, take it seriously, understand that the climate changes, don't know exactly why all the time. We do know that the Pleistocene Ice Age has been characterized by periods of cold where glaciers advanced down to the US border and beyond every 100,000 years for the last million years, 10 times. And before that, every 42,000 years for 1.6 million years, it shifted suddenly a million years ago from 42,000 year cycles to 100,000 year cycles. These coincide with the Milankovitch cycles of the gravitational effect of Jupiter on the Earth's orbit and tilt, but we don't know exactly why this happens or how it happens. We don't have a formula for it, but we know these facts that these things occur. We know these cycles exist because we've seen them in the ice cores from Antarctica and Greenland. And we know that we are now in one of the coldest periods in the last 250 million years. It's called the Pleistocene Ice Age. That's why there's so much ice on the poles. And so the whole idea that is gonna get too hot if it goes up a degree or two or even three is so completely ridiculous. It, would, it will have an effect if the temperature goes up, but it will have a far worse effect if the temperature goes down. It's only come up about 1.5 Celsius at the most since the peak of the Little Ice Age, or nadir, as you would call the bottom of a cycle. 1.5 degrees has made the difference between halfway starvation in Europe and today, with productive agriculture. Well, science had a lot to do with that too, but it was miserable cold in Europe in the Little Ice Age, only 300 years ago. Before that, the medieval warm period had Vikings farming Greenland and growing grapes in Scotland. So we know the cycle of historical climate and these people are, they are the deniers. I don't like to use that term, but if you deny the facts, it's fair to say that you are denying the facts. They are calling us deniers, and that is actually a hallmark of extremists, and in this case, the political left, 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 way left people. They call you what they are. It's projecting your own fault on the other. It's very effective. It's been used all through history of accusing your opponent of what you are doing. So that's where I would end with that. And I would only really try to have productive conversations with people who are willing to discuss it in an intelligent and friendly manner. Because we, we, we're allowed to have disagreements. But you can't call someone a, a science denier if they are, in fact, a scientist that is studying climate and understands a great deal about it. It's just beyond the pale. There you go.
Okay, so thank you very much. This has been pure gold. I really appreciate it. I'm all excited to uh, get this published and uh, to tweet out clips and quotes and everything. So thank you very much. And I would love to do this again if you ever have time in the future. I will do it anytime. And there's so much more to say, Tom. And again, I really appreciate your publicizing my book and some of the quotes from it on Twitter. Uh, it's very helpful. And I'm really enjoying the feedback I'm getting from the book. A lot of people are coming back to me. I, and I, I take the time to keep in touch with them. So thank you very much. And I'll do this anytime. All right. I'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye.